Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us here on INC Live for the UFC 276 preview show. My name is Carl Bamich and I am joined by the man on the right hand side of my screen. He is the Simon to my Garfunkel, the Hall to my Oats. It's Joe Neal. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Awesome to be here. Uh, also the Spike Deadly of the Deadly Boys as well. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, glad to be here. Definitely so. And I have to say a big thank you for tuning up. Obviously, um, tuning up, that's a car reference there. Turning up, I should say. Um, and of course, you stepped in on very short notice to cover the Shevchenko versus Santos fight for us. And a lot of people thought that your appearance went down very well. And you're here for another go, this time to try and do the whole thing for arguably the biggest card of the year. Yeah, this, uh, whenever I was like getting notes ready at the beginning of the week to make sure I, uh, I looked good on here, <laughs> um, I noticed every fight could be a co-main event or main event for any fight night, especially considering the, the fight night qualities we've had recently, you know, outside of the last one. But, uh, you know, it, almost every fight on here is fantastic. Like, yeah. uh, and I want to say for anybody who is wondering where John is, there has been no sort of falling out, no sort of dispute between myself and John. We are still very cordial. He just has some other commitments, which meant he couldn't record this month's show. Uh, if you do want to have any sort of understanding of where John is, if you want to see his full breakdown of UFC 276 and every other card that the UFC do, please go to Martian MMA. Look him up on social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it. John will have it covered. But now, though, we're going to turn our own attention to UFC 276. Now, International Fight Week, it's almost sort of become, dare I say, sort of like the WrestleMania for the UFC. You have the big fan interaction events. The UFC like to try and put on one of like a big high-profile show with a lot of stars, a lot of title fights. Where would this year's International Fight Week rank compared to some of their other outings? Uh, so this one is, it's pr it's a really good card. Izzy is a big mainstream attraction. Uh, and then you also have other mainstream attractions like Misha Tate on the card. Uh, Cowboy is a huge mainstay. Um, and like a, a couple others. And so, like, I always kind of think of, like, International Fight Week as, like, a hol like the holiday of the UFC. Like, the, that's the one time they celebrate, you know. And with all the fights on this card, it, it's it's got to be up there. It's, it's kind of hard to tell where it's going to rank at the end of the day um, until the event happens. But at least looking in, it does look really good. Yes, because I always have to err on the side of caution when I say this card is guaranteed to be amazing. Because <laughs> we have seen plenty of times before, like USC 200 is probably the biggest example where you had this massive star-studded card. You have to John Jones versus DC was finally going to happen. And the card ended up falling apart and was a fairly middle-of-the-road show when it actually all played out. So you have to sort of err on the side of caution. Based on paper, though, there is potential. Yeah. Uh, like, UFC 200 is the best example because I, I always say it. the prelims were good, the main card was disappointing, because the, but the opener, the two openers were great, like uh, the featherweight interim match and then Cain Velasquez, his, like, last win in the UFC, was, uh, was pretty awesome at the time. But other than that, it was like, ah... Just didn't kind of hit, you know, for the 200th event or FSA event. And I will say as well, International Fight Week, it's always a good gauge for myself because if you ever want to know who the UFC sort of like big pet projects are, 
they're almost guaranteed to appear on a fight week on a international fight week undercard and there's plenty of examples of this going on here you got ian gary sean o'malley duplessis macy barber so if you want to know who the stars of tomorrow are going to be you need to check out the prelims absolutely uh there's jalen turner also who i i think they're uh the, the, with the matchmaking they gave him i think they're looking into him more than i, I initially expected uh so he's another one of the prospects i think they're putting money into so it's very good gauge to see who who they're on the side of and we'll focus on those prelims in a little bit more detail right now you can see those on your screen now we're basing this prelim running order on Marcel Dorf's most recent update at the time of recording. So there was a last minute change before we recorded this where Cowboy Cerrone and Jim Miller were moved onto the main card. As things stand right now at the time of recording, Sean O'Malley will be headlining the uh, prelim portion of this card up against Pedro Munoz. Now initially when I heard this news, I thought, is this maybe a sign that the UFC are losing faith in Sean O'Malley? Obviously, like we're seeing new stars come to the forefront of people's minds. You look at people like Hamza, Chafkart, all that sort of jazz. And that Sean O'Malley has sort of become yesterday's news. But then the news came out that these prelims are going to be broadcast on ABC. And then it all made sense to me. I thought the same thing. I thought, are they, are they leaving uh, the Sugar Show or whatever he calls it? And no, then I saw that. I went, ah, okay, they, they want the the best name they can to headline these ABC prelims. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I will say as well, it is, it's much needed matchmaking from the UFC to give him Pedro Munoz because as entertaining as Sean O'Malley can be, as big of a fan base he has, there have been a lot of fans out there who have been frustrated at the caliber of competition he's faced. And they wanted <laughs> to see him get that jumping quality. Pedro Munoz is going to provide that. You look at some of the guys that he's faced over the course of his career. It's people like, it's Aljo, Jose Aldo, it's um, Cody Garban, where he managed to get that dramatic win at UFC 235. So he's fought the best of the best, and maybe he is a little bit past his prime now, but it's going to be a good litmus test for where Sean O'Malley stands. Question is, is O'Malley going to pass this lit, lit yeah, struggling with my words here, litmus test? <laughs> the litmus test. Uh, I, I don't know. I, on one hand, I go... Pedro Munoz has slowed down a bit, and there are two. But there are two things that Pedro Munoz does very well. One is he has an incredible right hand, and the other thing is he kind of bases his whole stand-up striking attack on the right calf kick. And no mm -hmm. one's the, the one person who's the two people who've calf kicked uh, Sean O'Malley that I can think of is one Cheeto Vera, and the other one he did it twice, and it allowed him to get inside. But then he just stopped. Was Chris Moutinho. And I was like, okay, so that's kind of something O'Malley needs to be cautious for. But I, I don't know. With the, with the level of competition he's faced, it's kind of hard to gauge where he's at, especially with like how rabid his fan base is. It kind of creates like this, like this uh, disconnect between like how good he is, or uh, like is he actually as good as they say, or is like his hype and the fans' hype kind of bringing a lot of opinions down because, you know, how rabid they seem to be. Like, they're very uh, enthusiastic fans. So, I, I don't know, personally, but I would lean towards O'Malley, per, I think. It reminds me a little bit of uh, the treatment that uh, Michael Venom Page got. Like, MVP was scoring all these highlight reel knockouts. He was headlining a lot of Bellator's European cards. 
But eventually it did get to the stage where, okay, the fun's over. I want to see him fighting top competition. And credit where it's due, I think MVP is showing, yes, he is capable of holding his own with Bellator's top band. Like, maybe he's not getting the wins, but he's not getting... Like, he was beating Douglas Lima before the knockout, in my opinion, and then he avenged that loss, maybe controversial. Then you had, like, the Logan Storley fight. Some people personally scored that fight the way of MVP. So he's holding his own at the top of that branch. And I feel the same way about Sean O'Malley. We've seen him beating the Eddie Winelands and the Chris Moutinho's and the Thomas Almeida's of the world. I want to see him against somebody who is top level. I think Munoz is like the is probably the best pick for him if we want to see him do that. Because um, I, I I wonder with the matchmaking, he said that he doesn't want anyone like super great because he wants to just keep making the easy paychecks. So if someone in that that tells me the UFC is either obliging him and thinking and they don't think Munoz is there anymore, or they ignored that request outright. What other matches um, on the prelims stand out for you? The big one for me that I – there's two that I'm not missing for the world, and one of them is Brad Riddell and Jalen Turner. I, I outright refuse to miss that one live. Um, that matchup is, is another great litmus test because Jalen Turner is four straight wins, none of them making it to round three, and, but Riddell is a, Riddell is a huge step up in competition – um, he had that incredible fight with Fizayev in, I think, December. Um, and he's a great striker. He's, I think, the current coach of Tiger Muay Thai, or maybe City Kickboxing when it comes to like their Muay Thai training. And uh, he's one of them. And Jalen Turner uh, has always looked pretty good, and then it just seems like like in the Luke fight, it's a, it was a competitive fight. Then he just made one mistake and gets put out. But I, I really, he seemed to have matured, and this is a the big step up. I'm really curious to see if he can continue this momentum. For myself, there's one name that stands out, and it is a bit of a sloppy welterweight brawl. Two old school guys, but Robbie Lawler, Brian Barberena. Absolutely oh. genius matchmaking. The best matchmaking on this whole card. That's That was my number other one that I'm not missing for the world. Uh, I love it. It is uh, It's perfect. I think there are concerns that maybe Robbie is a bit shot right now. Certainly wasn't the guy that was having the war, war with uh, Robbie McDonald, Carlos Condit, say, five or six years ago. But I think maybe that drop down has lowered him to Barbara Rayner's level, where a middle-of-the-road guy like Barbara Rayner, some guy who's sort of like on the fringe of the top 20, that sort of thing, can make it competitive. Robbie's going to go in there, bite down on the mouthpiece like he always does. Brian Barbarena, almost impossible to finish. I just expect 15 minutes of just blood and guts. I Either you're going down or I'm going down. There is no middle. I hope so. Uh, I, I also think Barbarina has slowed down a little bit since, like, his little brief, like, I'm, I'm gone, and then he came back. Because he took, like, a little bit of an extended break. In his last performance, uh, he just made the fight so uncomfortable for Matt Brown that he managed to get the win in a, in a great fight. Uh and I'm kind of hoping the same thing happens here because Matt Brown was still throwing it back at him. And I hope Lawler still can throw it back at him. I, <laughs> I hope they're both very healthy after the fight. Yes, but yes. I, but, I, but you never know with this kind of matchmaking. It's kind of insane and I'm weirdly all for it. 
final thoughts before we move on to the main card itself. Are you buying into the Ian Gary hype? No. <laughs> no hesitation. No, yeah. I, I don't at all. What about the Macy Barber hype? I think she's going to be Jessica Rye, mm. but I think there's a ceiling. I think so too. I, I think I think it's a. I think her problem is is mental, not physical. Uh, and she's very young. She's younger than me. I don't know. Uh, I, I like Macy Barber. I'm one of the few genuine fans of Macy Barber. You're putting her in and your I, boy stable. Yeah, I'd put her in because she's very embarrassing to say I like. Uh, you know. Because I, I get a lot of looks and I say, oh, I, I like her. Why? She's kind of fun. Um, I I don't know. I, I don't I don't think she's as good as the hype says it is. And I think we've seen that with the Miranda Maverick, the Montefiore fight, and the Alexa Grasso fight. I think we've seen how good she is now. But I think like her going to Team Alpha Mills is is good. I just hope that mentally she gets over like uh, some of the the hurdles. I think she. I'm hoping she's humbled enough to go. Okay, I can become a better fighter. I do need to adjust, and and then at that point, sky's the you know the sky's the limit for her because physically she is uh, just a young super athlete. So why not? Well, when we talk about boys stables, a nominee that a lot of people like to put forward is Lauren Murphy. And appropriately, she's going to be opening the main card itself. We're going to the women's flyweight division. Lauren Murphy, the number three seed, is taking on the number 10 seed at bantamweight, Misha Tate. Bookmakers odds for this one, you can get Tate as a minus 165 favourite. Lauren Murphy comes in at plus 140. And this, of course, will be Misha Tate's first appearance as a flyweight. Now, we're going to open this up by... Something which was inspired by what happened at UFC 275 and something I've been thinking for quite a few months and sort of been emboldened by this. Is women's flyweight slowly becoming a good weight class? <laughs> I love the wording on that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm starting to think so. On the recaps, I've given it uh, a lot of crap for not being the best. Uh, but with like Faro, uh, this fight seems to be pretty good. Um, or it's at least looking pretty good to me. And in, and of course, what happens with the title fight at flyweight last time? Um, it's seeming like it's actually going to be a good division pretty soon. I, I, I think I'd say within six months, when all when all these current fights we have made, when the dust settles on them, you know, I think we're going to be looking at a really good batch of like top contenders, like Faro, uh, the winner of that fight, the, the Lex Grosso fight, the winner of this fight. I think we could actually have a pretty solid division. I don't know if it'll be as good as, good as uh, straw weight. Straw, yeah, straw weight, but no. Uh, I, but still, like that, just because you're not as good as that weight class doesn't mean you're, you know, you're not a good, good division. This division looks great compared to bantamweight and women's featherweight. Yeah, well, women's featherweight doesn't exist. Like the, the, BMF, <laughs> the BMF belt is more legitimate than the women's featherweight belt. Oh, cracking and harsh but in incredibly true yes let's focus our attention <laughs> yeah. on this fight first and we'll focus on arguably the a side of this fight which no offense to lauren murphy but most people are going to be intrigued about misha tate so for anyone who knows misha tate former bantamweight champion also won the belt at strike force a portfolio of notable names on her record holly holm sarah mcmahon liz carmouche julie kedsey marlis coonan who she won the belt off back in strike force um, she, of course, left the sport at UFC 205, 
took four or five years off, had two kids, had some roles with one championship away from the sport. And then, of course, she comes back to many people's surprise in 2021, and she went one and one So she beat Marion Renault on a bantamweight comeback and then lost the decision up against Ketler Vieira. In general, what's your opinion been of Misha's comeback so far? What have you liked? What have you disliked from her? Do you think this move to flyweight is a desperation move, or do you think it's the smart one to make given what happened against Ketlin? Uh, over, like, of her whole, like, comeback, uh, that Ketlin Vieira card was was rough. So I kind of have trouble remembering that. I had to uh, watch a lot of highlights and kind of, like, refresh myself on that fight. Uh, and then, but I, I was impressed with her comeback, her first comeback win. I thought she was going to win regardless, but... Um, you know, I was impressed for her seat to get a stoppage like that. Uh, I do think that this cut is a mixture of desperation and being a smart move. Like, we, you don't know how well a cut's going to be. Uh, as someone who has cut weight before, you don't really know how successful the cut's going to be until you do it. And so I'm sure in her mind, it's like, this is the right call. Uh, but if it goes bad, it, it is going to be desperate in hindsight. It's kind of that weird two-sided coin um, and she's cutting a lot more weight than I did, so yeah, props to her. Uh, and the general yeah. consensus that I've found is I don't think Misha sort of reinvented the wheel in these first two fights. Like the Misha tape we saw fighting Holly Holm, winning the belt at 196, that was still still there when she fought Ketlin and um, Marion Renault. But at the same time, I think that's a good thing because Misha hasn't gotten away from what got her to the dance, which is a very strong wrestling game, uh, being as game as they come, willing to take some shots to try and dish some out herself. But I think that can work against someone like Marion Renault, who was 44, maybe had one foot out the door. But what we saw against Ketlin Vieira, I think the big thing that stood out for me was the size difference. Like Misha is shredded at 135. But Ketlin is... Ketlin was huge in that fight, and Misha managed to get a couple of takedowns down, but because Ketlin is so big, she couldn't do anything with them on the ground. Ketlin had the power advantage, and it was it was a brave, gritty performance from Misha Tate. I think it was one of the most people... I expected Ketlin to win that fight, and that's how it played out. And it played out sort of with the way I expected it to, where the power advantage was just too much for her to overcome. Yeah, it... Uh... When, when the size difference, I think, had to have kind of put that thought in her mind. And I, I know she blamed a, a good amount of it on her friend, Juliana Pena, beating Nunes. And she's like, oh, I don't want to go against my friend if I get a title shot. But I, I think I think the size disadvantage she had to deal with was enough for her to go. Uh, times have changed. I, I got I to gotta cut weight, maybe. So that, that does kind of make sense to me as well. If she can't take some sort of inspiration, though... It comes from her opponent. Like Lauren Murphy started her UFC career as a bantamweight. I think she went one in three during her run there. And was sort of seen as a bit of a, a field filler, as it were. I mean, she did get a good win up at Kelly Fatsholtz, which is a criminally underrated war. It's one that I really think you it's worth checking out. Like Lauren's just top, which is absolutely spewn with blood. Um not her own blood. That was all the damage she did to um to her opponent. But she moves down to flyweight, and it, maybe she did take advantage of the division being in the sort of embryonic stages. But five-fight winning streak, wins over Joanne Wood, 
Andrea Lee, Roxanne Modafferi. She gets that title fight against Shevchenko. Massive underdog. And unfortunately, the bookmakers were justified. And that's no... Like, Lauren Murphy didn't fight badly in that fight. That was just Shevchenko at the top of the game. I think she had a bad game plan uh, going in, honestly. I think she... I think she kind of, when I was looking at interviews with her, her mentality was of, like, I'm, I'm the Rocky story. Like, I'm going to go in there and do what I've always done and get this win the way I've always done it. And it's like, I, I don't know if that's the mindset you need to have against any champion. I think you really need to do your, like, your homework, I, I guess is the right wording. Look at how, what you can take against them and what you can do against them. Like, how do you match up with them? And uh, she just kind of kept, like, walking in the counter shots. And then, of course, the big check hook landed. I think she was spooked by Shevchenko. I think she did have that mindset quite early in the game. And then she realized when Shevchenko was, like, tagging her with uh, kicks at distance and then counter strikes coming in, she was almost a bit caught out, uh, sort of like, well, what do I do now? I, I don't really know <laughs> what's, what sort of position to get myself into to get some offense. And it was it was quite sad to see because, like, Shevchenko was taking her time, almost sort of like playing with her food in that fight. And it must be so disheartening for Lauren Murphy to just be in this position where I know I'm not going to win, but she's not finishing me either. I've got another 20 minutes of this to go. Yeah. It's like you're you're mentally finished, but physically you can still go. And, you know, and then you can't like, you know, because you can still go, you kind of don't want to like give up that easy because there's the guilt of that. It, it was... It was a weird, like almost psychological horror, like in a sense, watching that fight. It was, it was awkward. Uh, it's, her spirit was just broken by the first round. I think a lot, in a lot of ways with this fight, we've got sort of a, I hate to use this stereotype, but the quintessential striker versus grappler matchup. Like I think Misha was going to try her best to make this a wrestling heavy game. And she's got the takedowns to do it. We saw that when she fought Marion Renault and we've seen that throughout her UFC career. Lauren is going to try and... I think, turn this into a brawl. She's going to... I think a lot of her work in the clinch is very, very underrated. Good use of elbows. Um, if it does go to the ground, I think she has a decent grappling game, even if she is maybe a little bit too comfortable being on her back. I think that's maybe one concern I have with Lauren Murphy. I think the biggest factor for me going into this fight, there's two of them. Is Lauren Murphy going to be as motivated with this fight? Bearing in mind, 38 years old, and she lost what's most likely going to be her only chance to be a UFC champion? Or is the bigger factor going to be Misha and that cut to flyweight? Is Misha, who's always been known for her durability, her resilience, is she going to be able to use those tools when she has to cut another 10 pounds? Because we've seen plenty of times, Cody Garbrandt, TJ Dillashaw, you cut those extra 10, your chin just completely goes it's uh it takes a lot out of you uh just like you we've, it's like even his like uh, scientifically shown that you're actually yes like your durability just isn't affected i forget the exact wording of it uh but i think the big factor is the weight cut because this is the first time and i always want to see what the first weight cut looks like um especially for a fight i i could see that being the the factor thing because that if you let's say her cardio has affected her incredible cardio that allowed her to become champion at bantamweight uh, and her resiliency, if that's gone, 
then if your gas tank starts to fail her in the waning moments of the you know second round and then all of the third round it, it could be a you know a long night for her essentially and we saw but who knows and we saw what happened with Misha when she has bad wake up when she ended up losing the belt like she looked awful oh, yeah. on the scales it was like all these photos of her backstage just lying on the ground just pretty much uh, she was screaming, wasn't she? Yeah, it, it wasn't very yeah. nice to watch. And we saw her performance at UFC 200. It just, it was not the Misha Tate that we came to know and love. So I think it is going to be a massive factor. I do think the UFC are putting a lot of their eggs in the Misha Tate basket. Like, in, if you were to look at the top five in the flyweight division, and you had to pit Misha against somebody, I would arguably say, and this is no disrespect to Lauren Murphy, Lauren Murphy is a more beatable opponent than a Tyler Santos, a Chukasian, an Andrade. I think the UFC are wanting Misha to win this fight and do Shevchenko versus Tate maybe later in the year. I, I 100% think so. We talked about it in the last preview show, uh, and I, I, I still stand by my feelings of no matter what happens. You want Grosser to get that title shot, don't you? I do, I do. <laughs> uh, but I, I think... That, I think uh, I, I Faro deserves it. Friends, I my heart wants Grasso to do it, but my brain says it's going to go to Tate. But that's if she wins, no matter what. If she wins, and it's at least not controversial, she's she's getting a title shot. Put your money where your mouth is, Joe. Who is going to win this one? I think I have Tate by decision. Is I I thought about I thought about this fight ironically, uh, or uh, not ironically, but uh, coincidentally the. The longest like coming to a decision of like how do I feel and I I've come to the conclusion I think that the first two rounds uh it's gonna be the Misha Tate show for the first like one and a half round specifically and then I, I could see her slowing down and I think Lauren Murphy takes the third round it's kind of how I picture it but uh, I, I do have Misha Tate winning I have Misha decision. Tate winning as well I think it's going to be quite a grappling heavy performance uh partly because I think Misha is going to be a lot more going to find the takedowns a lot easier against somebody at a smaller weight class and also because I do fear that Lauren Murphy is maybe a bit too reliant on a jiu-jitsu is going to be content to stay on her back and that's fine if you're able to get the submission but time's against you and I could see Misha just yeah. ease, just grinding out those uh, again like you said the first two rounds the third round, I do think is going to be interesting, is Misha's cardio going to hold up? And we have seen before, in the past with Lauren Murphy, she can rally. Like, Marva Barella was beating her two rounds to nil and ended up getting the finish. So, a late Lauren Murphy flurry isn't out the question here, but I do think Misha's going to win. I, I, I 100% agree. She, Lauren Murphy, funny, uh, that she kind of reminds you of uh, Darren Elkins. Yes, in that sense. Good, good comparison, yeah. actually. Yeah. I Because I, I, was, I was trying to remember, uh, I was like, yeah, that's right, she was down. It's like kind of like Darren Elkins. It's like, oh wow, um, and that's what she kind of reminds me of. But uh, I, I do think this is the. I, I can see Tate just kind of taking it. I, I, it's it's just too easy for me to to not say Tate, even though they're similar sizes. Uh, technically, uh, I think the I think she's going to have the strength and size advantage. Fight number two on our card, and we're going to the closest betting odds fight on the entire card, and we're going to the middleweight division. A potential title eliminator here. It is Sean Strickland, the number four seed, who is taking on the unranked Alex Pereira. Alex Pereira enters this fight minus 120 favorite. Evens odds for Sean Strickland. So this is pretty much a pick and fight. And 
I've been really fascinated by how a lot of fans are perceiving this one because Alex Pereira is the bookmaker's favourite for this fight. Personally, I think he's going to win. But you speak to a lot of fans online, they're not even open to the idea of Sean Strickland winning this match. Like, I don't know if it's because they like the idea of Adesanya versus Pereira and they sort of sort of program themselves to think this fight is going to be amazing and it's definitely going to happen and it's just sort of writing Strickland off by default or whether it's a case of they know the fighting style that Sean Strickland has he's not the most likable guy in the world and part of it's people not wanting him to win because <laughs> Sean Strickland is on a great run of form six fight winning streak he has a wrestling background he's only lost three times in his career and one of those was to Kamara Usman Weltweight he's he is not a scrub at all in this fight. He does have a chance to win this one. And I think a lot of people are writing him off. I uh, I don't know. You saw my reaction, probably. I, I didn't know the odds were that close. Because uh, I've seen everybody go, oh, Pajeda's winning. Call it, call it a night. And I'm the opposite camp. You know, I'm like, I, how does Strickland not win this fight is kind of my mindset. Um, I Yeah, I... Uh, Strickland is not a scrub at all. I think he's actually legit. Just because he's he's a weird guy, he talks way too much, and he's definitely offensive. Uh, doesn't mean he can't fight. He can't. He can go. You know, um, it's interesting. And only one knockout loss on his record as well, and that was to Zaleski dos Santos at UFC 224. So his durability hasn't really been questioned yet. Um, but it is going to when it comes to Alex Pereira. So we'll go into a bit of a deep dive when it comes to Pereira for a lot of people who might not know who he is. Now, 5-1 record doesn't look all that impressive until you see what he was doing outside of the UFC. So a two-way champion in glory kickboxing, 33-7 record. Most fans will know him, though, as the only man to ever finish Israel Adesanya. And it was Adesanya's loss in that match that convinced him to go into MMA. So a lot of people are building up the idea potentially of Pereira versus Adesanya 2, this time MMA rules, will history repeat itself or will the skills that Adesanya has learned from being in MMA a little bit longer come to the fore? It's, the, it's what the fans want. It's arguably what the UFC wants. Are the UFC making the right call putting Pereira into this kind of high-stakes matchup three fights into his MMA career? into his UFC career, I should say? Uh, I think it's a little risky. I think kind of similar to like what we said about Lauren Murphy. Like When you look at the top contenders, you go, she's the most beatable. They're probably saying the same thing with Sean Strickland uh, because Vittori, despite, not, just, despite being very beaten potatoes, is very tough to put away. Hermanson's lost two in a row, so can't be him. Uh, Darren Till is always injured or and also on a losing streak. Brunson, I think, had a fight already. Like all these people were either matched up or just tougher opponents, uh, arguably. And I, I, so I think that's kind of what they were doing here with Strickland. But I think it's a little risky. I, I know they want to make that big money, Izzy uh, Pajeda three because they fought twice in kickboxing. Because one was the knockout, and I think it was the first one they had was like a really close like decision win for Pajeda. Uh, but I mean, it, it's risky, but. I think the UFC is aware of it because the hype helps only helps the winner. Um, 
And if you talk about Alex Pereira as well, based on his kickboxing and what we've seen so far in MMA, um, a lot of people wondered, would his power be able to carry? Of course, we've seen what he did to uh, Andreas Michalidis. It certainly does. I mean, that flying knee was really... That, that was a brutal, brutal knockout. The Polaroid picture moment. You know, just, like, picture perfect. It was incredible. And in the first round, after he lost the first round, he just came out, double flying, or a switch knee. Awesome. You know, it was great. It was amazing. I do think that flying knee, though, maybe did disguise some of the ailments that we saw from Alex Pereira because Andreas Michalidis isn't really known as an out-and-out grappler, but he was able to take Pereira down, and maybe he maybe didn't do as much damage to Pereira as a lot of people maybe like to paint it out, but he was controlling him. And you could see that Pereira did seem a little bit lost on the ground. So this fight's really going to come down to can Alex Pereira handle a grappling threat of Sean Strickland? And even though Strickland has become very strike-heavy, very jab-heavy in his UFC run, you go back and you watch his welterweight stuff, the guy can grapple. He's a very underrated wrestler. Yeah, he was a, I remember him, I think his first fight I saw him was against Tom Brees back in the day. And when I started kind of like keeping up with his career, I was like, this guy can kind of do a little bit of everything. He's awkward and goofy with his chin up when he strikes, but he can still, you know, the fact that he offensively can do anything, uh, I think that makes this an interesting matchup. Uh, a very interesting, honestly, a very interesting matchup. It's this fight is actually one of the one, the one of the ones I'm looking forward to most. Yeah, um, Alex Pereira suffered a submission loss in his MMA debut. Now this took place at Jungle Fight in 2015. I I'm afraid to say I don't have many notes on his opponent during that fight, but. Jungle Fight, it's sort of seen as the stepping stone uh, for Brazilian fighters before they get into the UFC. So it's held in quite a high regard. So losing a fight there on your MMA debut maybe isn't as shameful as it maybe could be somewhere else. Does that submission loss still carry some weight? Can we read anything into that in 2022? It was was in 2015. Uh, I I have it in my notes. It says 2015 is when he suffered his uh, loss in his debut. And so it's seven years ago, uh, he's been training, like his main training partner is Glover Teixeira, who is fantastic when it comes to the grappling. Yes, good so point. I'm, sh- I'm sure in terms of like mental, mental effects, there's none, you know, uh, from that first loss. It's, it's probably just annoys him at this point. It's like, ah, yeah, that happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it carries too much weight. I, I think it gives a small blueprint of how to beat him. But whenever you hear Glory Kickboxing Champion, you kind of have a general concept of how do I beat this guy in MMA yeah. already. So, And I think it's a given as well that Strickland's going to try and utilize a wrestling heavy game in this one. But we have seen Sean Strickland using his jab a lot. Surely he's not going to try and box a kickboxer, is he? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I see it like this. Sean, Sean Strickland is the is the ultimate. Surely you won't say this. Surely you won't do this. Surely you won't like. And then he does it, and it's funny until you realize he's serious, and then it's just awkward. Uh, <laughs> uh, hard to be a fan of him, uh, but I, I think he is. I think he's gonna. In my notes, I could see him getting wild, getting clipped, and then going, oh, none of that if he doesn't go out. Yes. But that, 
I think I think that's a hundred percent how the fight's going. And I that, think he will get clipped. Though. That's a big concern I do have with Strickland because you you go back and you watch a lot of his fights. You go back and you watch a lot of his sparring footage. He does get touched up, and I just have this fear that one of those shots from Pereira, who does carry a ton of power, is maybe going to be a bit too much. Because I watched that fight with Bruno Silva that Pereira had. And there was one moment where I think like Silver was sort of pushing forward a little bit, trying to go on the offense, and he just sends sort of like glancing left hook as he's coming in on the counter, and you could just see Bruno just suddenly just go, "Whoa, what's going on here?" And just as he falls back on himself, it's it's got like whenever like a a big deal striker comes in MMA, everybody loves to like, and I, I'm guilty of this too. Talk about like, oh, you know, when they do, they just have to touch you when you go out. They have a different kind of power. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's like a weird myth that like Joe Rogan likes to say that to hype someone up. Yes. And so we, of course, naturally believe it. Uh, Pajeda kind of does have that power. That same moment convinced me of, oh, maybe this isn't a myth for him. Uh, you know, and that is his money shot is the left hook. Uh, but that is also a really good counter to a, a jab, uh, which when you're jabbing a ton and your chin is up in the air moving forward... Uh, you know, it's the striking matchup is interesting and terrifying for Sean Strickland. Stylistically, this could be a very long night or a very short night for Sean Strickland. I just I have the same fears for you uh, from his regard because I just I think the UFC have been very clever with how they've done this because Alex Pereira is getting a guy who has a very jab heavy game plan, which is as you mentioned before a major cap. So like. You found that left hook. It's a great counter to the jab, as you mentioned before. And Strickland is very jab heavy. Maybe he doesn't have the grappling game to neutralize Pereira. I, I, it, it, it's, it's a really fascinating one to say, and I'm struggling to choose who's going to win this one. I'm, I'm leaning towards Pereira because of the power. I, I, I get that. I, I think when people say there's no chance Strickland can, yes, can win, that's, whatever, that's the part I, that's bothering me. It, that kills me. I, I, I personally get a good laugh when I see that on Twitter. Like, uh, we, we live in a world where Carla Vespaza and Juliana Pena are champions. Anything yeah. can happen in the sport. I, I, I have seen... The Juliana Pena is up there of, like the, of recent memory. I have seen the craziness that the sport can happen. Sean Strickland is cringy and way too offensive for like Twitter, right? But that doesn't mean he can't go. He could absolutely walk in and starch Pajeda. I doubt it, but like on the feet, he he could. I, I don't understand what people are just writing him off just because he's uh, a, l- a little bit too much of a character. Um, that's that's playing it lightly. He is sometimes just awful. Uh, <laughs> I have to admit that. Uh, so no one calls me out, but. <laughs> Because I am trying to be a fan of his, but he is just awful sometimes. Um, I, I think this is a good matchup. It's it's a it's an awesome, fun matchup to think about. Like me and my best friend have gone back and forth on this for feels like hours. Countless cigarettes just sitting there, going like, "Well, what could happen?" Like I, I think I know what's going to happen, but I still in that have like a but this could totally happen too. So what is going to happen? I think he does get clipped, you know, because if you when you see a sparring footage, when you see at the very, I think it was the last moments of the Hermanson fight, he's like, "Oh, come on, hit me! Oh, I, I can take it." This is a guy you don't want to do that to, but I could see him 
goading that. And I think once he gets hit, he goes, oh, never mind. I don't want to take this again. Uh, and I think he's going to take him down. And I can even see him getting a grounded pound finish, uh, actually. I, I think his top game in his wrestling and his grappling are good enough. He trains that primarily from the little bit of insight I've heard into his camps. Like, he is training his, uh, like, his grappling extensively. He just likes to spar too much is the problem. And that's why he fought, fell in love with the jab recently. But... I can see I can see him controlling him on the on the ground and maybe even getting a stoppage. I'm going to go for Pereira second round finish. With that being said, I think Strickland will win the first round and then get clipped in the second. It, it could happen, and uh, like I said, that like, like we both said, anything could happen in this fight. Who, who knows? <laughs> it's awesome. Fight number three, and it's a late addition to our main card to the entire card. It should be said. Donald Cowboy Cerrone is taking on Jim Miller. Uh, no bookmakers odds for this one because obviously it has just been added to the card. Um, now, Bobby Green was supposed to be facing Jim Miller and this was supposed to be on the Fight Pass prelims. It was moved once Cowboy said, hey, I'll step in 10 days notice and we'll make it a welterweight fight just so I don't need to go through the weight cut again. It's a rematch from, US, from two, uh, 2014, I should say. Fight night, Donald Cerrone versus Jim Miller. Now, Cowboy won that one by second-round KO and became the first man ever to knock out Jim Miller. This is, once again, in my opinion, sensible matchmaking from the UFC. Two veterans who have longevity records, I think. I think they're both tied for the most wins in UFC history, so the winner of this one will get that record until Andrei Olofsky, a like 50-year-old, beats another unranked heavyweight by a decision. He's um, going to outpoint 40, 30-year-olds by that time. <laughs> And the thing is, he's still in fantastic shape. I can't put it past yeah. him. He's still going and still looking pretty good as well. I still want to see him as a Bond villain, you know, like right now, uh, Arlovsky. He looks great. Yeah, I think he I think he was like a henchwoman in like one of the Denzel Washington action films. He, he was uh, in like one of this, uh, I think it was like a direct-to-DVD uh, cyborg soldier or whatever <laughs> it was called. And... Uh, Oh, it's like it was a sequel to a John Claude Van Damme movie, and he was the one of the villains in it. And he was actually good. Where do you stand on this in terms of matchmaking? Because on one hand, two veteran guys going at it, so like one last time, one last stand, as it were, and it's a smarter use for both of them than what the UFC were doing, which was using a fighter, a fading fighter, to build up some of their young prospects. The UFC went through a phase where they were doing that all the time. At the same time, though, people are paying $80 to watch a 39-year-old Cowboy Cerrone versus a 38-year-old Jim Miller. If this was Bellator, they would be getting crapped on for this. If it was Bellator, they'd be main eventing. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I... I don't think this is good matchmaking, but it, it, it's also because of circumstance. Uh, Bobby Green's out, so you got to bring Cerrone in. Cowboy in his last fights, I've just gone, please retire, dude. You're hurting my, you're hurting my soul. Where Jim Miller in his last couple fights, I've gone, oh, actually, you still look pretty good for how old you are. You know, I, I was actually campaigning for Jim Miller to fight Patty Pimblett. That was uh, a really good idea, actually. Yeah, I is like that was my first recap ever, my first video on the show, all bringing it full circle. Uh, I wanted Jim Miller to to take that on. I thought that was a, a good litmus test because he's impressed me as of late, um, and Cowboy hasn't. Cowboy's made me sad of late. Yeah, uh, I, I, I it, it's a 
I understand why you're placing it on the card. I, I saw a theory on Twitter. I forgot who it was. It might have even been you. But it sounds like Loser's leaving town, and that's why. And they've made that agreement backstage, and that's why the UFC put it on. Yeah, I think I, I think I said something similar in one of my tweets because we know how game Donald Cerrone can be. Like he'll fight anyone and everyone at any time. But recently, after the Alex Morono fight, any fight that he's been booked for has been on a crowd show. So he was supposed to be on like Fight Night Austin. They tried to get him in there for, I think, UFC 274, which obviously fell through. And now again, they've got him on 276. There's a reason they want him fighting in front of a crowd. And I think that's because they want to give him like the bells and whistles. So win or lose, he takes off the gloves, says goodbye to the fans one last time. And he gets that sort of send off that the Hall of Famer should do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I never actually thought about that. Yeah, it has been all crowd shows. No Apex fight cards uh, at all for him, and that that makes sense. I mean, obviously he's a you know he's one of the, he's like the the MF Doom of the fight game. Him and Robbie Lawler, they're your favorite fighter's favorite fighter, like Cerrone and Lawler, and so like they they always get the huge you know pop whenever they whenever they come out. But and so I know the UFC loves that. But I I think actually that it comes more with they have only booked him for these. The crowd shows it has to be for something they know and we don't, in my mind, now. And given that it's the final fight on his contract, is this potentially the last fight for Jim Miller as well? Uh, I think if he loses. Uh, I, I know he said that I don't have any intention of like quitting or anything like that. Uh, it, it could be the last UFC fight for Jim Miller. Maybe they don't, maybe they don't want to pay him, like because Reebok or not Reebok, it's Venom now, but they're like fight payout, fighter payouts. It's based on how many fights you've yes. had, and so they're like, you've had eighty fights in here. Uh, we're not paying you. We don't. We don't like paying any fighter. We're not paying you that kind of money. Uh, and so I, I could see that, but I don't know if that's his. I don't know if this is a, a top, put the gloves up moment for Jim Miller. I think it is for Cowboy though. So let's talk about Cowboy in a little bit more detail. Now, you look through the guy's portfolio. He's been fighting for nearly 20 years. And he's got some really notable wins on his record. I'll go through some of his uh, portfolio here. Ali Akinta, Matt Brown, Alex Oliveira, Benson Henderson, Eddie Alvarez, Jim Miller, as we mentioned before, Barboza, Jeremy Stevens, current lightweight champion Charles Oliveira. So that is an impressive portfolio for a guy who's been around for goodness knows how long. You mentioned before that you felt the Cowboys' last few fights have been sad. I was maybe a bit slow to the party. I I sort of gave him a bit of a benefit of the doubt, given the fighters who he was facing. Because he was facing Tony Ferguson in his prime, Justin Gagey, Connor, even guys like Nicole Price, who was sort of like a fringe top 15 guy. It was the Alex Morono fight that made me realize just how far Cowboy had fallen. Because no disrespect to uh, Alex Morono, but Donald Cerrone, a prime Donald Cerrone, doesn't lose to that kind of fighter. Donald Cerrone doesn't let Morono go out of the first round in his prime. Like, prime Donald Cerrone was, unless you were a champion, you weren't really beating him. It, It kind of felt like at that period, he had like a weird mystique to him. Like, oh, this is a fight night main event. Have fun fighting Cowboy. Jim Miller fell victim to that, you know. Um, I, I think it's I think the Nico Price or the the Connor fight was like, oh, you look nothing like 
I mean, I, I, that was an awful matchup for him. Yeah. Because there's two things. There's two things Cowboy historically has hated. Uh, he hates the fact that people will throw straight punches at him. Or three things now that I think about it. He hates straight punches. He hates body shots and pressure. And those are that's Conor McGregor and Southpaws you know. as well. Oh yeah, he does hate Southpaws. Yeah, four things, and that is literally Conor McGregor's whole game, as a nutshell: pressure, straight hitting, snap kicks up the middle, and a Southpaw. It's you know, it's uh, the worst recipe for disaster for him. And so, uh, the, but the Nico Price one was where I went. Oh man, dude, you look eighty in there. The uh, the template for Donald Cerrone has been written countless times. We all know about his strengths, his weaknesses, but for anybody who maybe is a bit unfamiliar to Cowboy, maybe tuning into the sport for the first time, we focus on some of the weaknesses of the guy. What are his strengths? Glad you asked that. Uh, <laughs> I, could, I could teach a college course on this. Uh, <laughs> with how much We've only got about I'll... an hour and a half. <laughs> I'll make, I'll make it less than five minutes, uh, my preview, if you want to sign up on Patreon for my college course on it. Uh, but um, he he doesn't have the best jab in the world. Like, there's fights where he'll have, like, he'll show off an incredible jab. The Iaquinta is probably the most, like, whoa performance for me because uh, his jab looked great in that fight. But what he really excels at is getting you to think about his hands because he does have sting in his punches, and then he just kicks you like a mule. Uh, he has a great uh, inside low kick if you're if you're orthodox, but if you're southpaw, your lead calf is getting wrecked. He's one of the first guys I saw actively kicking the calf against southpaw opponents. He did it against Benson Henderson in their two WEC fights, if I remember correctly. He did it in the first Jim Henderson or uh, Jim Miller fight. He did it, um, and of course he had. He's like a lightweight crow cop in terms of like head kick highlights. He is just known for it. Uh, a crow cop is the most famous head kicker. Cowboy's got to be number two because he just head kicks everybody. And he's a slow starter, but he's also in his prime was very resilient and would almost just kind of catalog like, oh, you really like doing that, huh? You like leaping in with a left hook, but you duck to your right. I'm going to throw a left high kick and just clobber you. You mentioned a lot of the uh, same strengths that I've got written down on my notes here, which is obviously the kick-heavy game plan. one of the sort of quirks I find quite interesting about Cowboy is when they're up in the clinch, like we've seen Leon Edwards use this quite most prominently, where he'll sort of like, as he's releasing from the clinch, he'll throw like a quick elbow in, and it's a good way to deal some damage. Cowboy's sort of similar in that when he releases from the clinch, that's when he'll throw his kicks. And I think that's, that's a quirk that I think only he seems to do. One of the things you also didn't mention as well Cowboy's an underrated grappler. He has a lot of submission wins on his record. Yeah, I actually don't know how I forgot about that because that was what he was known for in WEC. In WEC, they, they would be like, oh, he's one of the best American Muay Thai kickboxers. And it's like, right, are you sure this guy's arm barring and triangle choking, guillotining everybody? Like, yeah, he, he did start off his career with like more submissions and knockouts. Just like tapped out everybody. Like, go watch that uh, fight with Benson Henderson, the first fight they had. Amazing fight, by the way, but Henderson would just take him down at will. But Cowboy, almost instinctively, he'd go for triangles and then he'd try and counter into arm bars as well. It was a great back and forth matchup. And I think a lot of people that have Cowboy down as just a kickboxer need to recognize that he does have that grappling edge to him. It, yeah, that's, that's a... Like, 
uh, he has actually one of my favorite. I'm glad he brought up that first fight because one of my favorite moments in that is he goes, he has a guillotine. Henderson's popping out, and then so they're already in this guard. He just falls back and transitions to a triangle choke, then to an arm bar, then goes for an omoplata, which Henderson gets out of all of it. And it, it's it was like a, a Shogun Henderson one grappling match instead of a stand up brawl. It was like a grappling brawl, and his his grappling is incredible. Uh, and he he's done uh, competitive grappling as well, like uh, like in you know guest appearances, but he's always looked good there despite losing sometimes. So let's talk a little bit about Jim Miller. Um, obviously, he's coming into this fight on a two-fight winning streak, two-fight knockout streak. His last win was up against Nicholas Motta, which was the fight night Johnny Walker versus Jamal Hill card. God, some of these fight nights, some of the main events he fought on this fight night, just no star power whatsoever. Notable wins, Clay Guida, Thiago Alves, two wins over Joe Lozon, Takinori Gomi, Charles Oliveira, Gleason Tebow. So two guys here who both beaten Charles Oliveira, which I find quite quirky as well. We mentioned before Jim Miller, Jim Miller is on a two-fight winning streak, both by knockout. Why do you think Jim Miller has been able to perform at a still fairly high level, given his age, in a way that Cowboy hasn't? I think it's his style. Uh, Jim Miller, is, on the striking, uh, it's kind of meat and potatoes with his boxing but he will throw some kicks, some knees, and some elbows in there. Uh, Joe Lozon remembers the elbows, sadly. Um, and but uh, but he's mostly a grappler, like a like a you know dive in on the leg, take you down, beat you up, and try and get a submission. Um, and I think the fact that like he's been grappling for so long, he's avoided all these like mm. crazy brawls. Uh, grappling is going to mess you up in the long term, like your back and shoulders. Like, look at Boss Rudin's, you know, uh, back injuries and spinal injuries from grappling so much. But um, in the short term, which this is still the short term, striking will do a considerable amount of damage on, like, your longevity in the sport. And I think that's, like, when you look at their styles, Cowboy does stand up. He'll get a takedown if he needs it, and he'll grapple if he has to. But uh, he's primarily a striker, you know, a well-rounded striker. So, and then Jim Miller is a well-rounded grappler. Do you think that Miller's going to make this quite grappling heavy? He has been quite stand-up reliant over his past few matches. Maybe there's some conditioning issues that go with that, because I have noticed that Jim Miller does slow down big time when it enters the second and the third rounds. Do you think, what sort of approach is he going to take here? Because grappling with a shock cowboy is maybe an easy path to victory, but where do you personally stand? I think he's going to strike with him. I think uh, his straight left recently has looked very good. Yes, uh, It's looked like a laser. Um, I, I could see that being the big tool to victory for him. And I think once he finds success with it early, I think he's like, oh, okay, I'll just do this. And I, I think a lot of it is remember he had like kidney injuries years back from like a bad weight cuts he was doing. And that has to like still have that effect on you. That's probably why he isn't grappling as much because of his cardio. Um, but I, so I, I could see him trying to keep this a striking matchup. Uh, do you think? Do you think welterweight? The fact the fight's taking place at welterweight. Do you think that's maybe going to help Cowboy a little bit? I think I think it will, but I think it's going to help Miller more. Well, actually, no. Cowboy uh, just had the fight scheduled. I, for some reason, uh, I was thinking like, oh no, he they, he just got ready ten days ago. No, he he was ready not that long ago, and then Lozon tweaked his knee. So yeah. Um, 
I think it's a beneficial for both. Uh, I don't know who it would be more beneficial for. My mind says, my heart says cowboy, and I'm kind of leaning towards that mentally as well. I'm going to be picking Jim Miller for this one. I think that yeah. mileage is going to be a major factor. And I think that even though Jim Miller is 38, he hasn't looked as washed as what Cowboy has. And I can see... I don't think it's going to be in the first round. I think it's going to be the second. I can see Jim Miller sort of like wobbling Cowboy a little bit and something similar to what we saw against Morono where Miller's not really sort of like finishing him off, but it's just sort of like an accumulation of strikes and then Herb Dean, Mark Goddard, whoever it is, just jumps in and says, that's enough. I, I 100% agree. I... Jim Miller's 38, but he also fights and looks like he's 38. Cowboy is, I think you said 37, 38, around that, around that range. He looks like he's 50 in there. and Because fight years are different than your actual years. And Cowboy ha- has the wear and tear on him. Uh, I think it's a first round, personally. I think he gets clipped, and I think it's just like the Morano fight. Yeah, I always tell people about fight years as well. Like A lot of people will say oh, this guy's only 32 and this guy's like 40 and how can you favor one over the other? Like, it's because of fight years. Like, the one that always comes to mind for me is Henan Burrell. Like, Henan Burrell looked washed at 31. Yeah. I, I always go Shogun and Aldo are like the two weirder, exa- like opposite examples of like fight years. It's like, he's in his 30s and he, but, it, you know, it feels like he's like in his like mid to late 30s, but he doesn't fight like that. It, it's a weird you know, fountain of youth he found, kind of found. But then Shogun, he's been fighting since he was 20, you know, 23 in Pride was when he got big. And so he's like 80 in fight years. It's it's a different sport. Like all the brawls, all the gym wars, they just add years every time you take a, a haymaker. Someone someone said to me, Shogun's been watched for 10 years. <sighs> that hurts. It kind of true. Um, but. I, I'm actually thinking about doing a Shogun retrospective. Like, obviously, I'll wait until he ends he ends up retiring before I do it. But I am thinking about doing a video focusing on Shogun's UFC run to see whether or not it is as as good or as bad as what people make it out to be. Because there were some good wins there from Shogun. Like, he wasn't like I think a lot of people instantly sort of paint his UFC career as a failure. But I think that's only because of how good he was in Pride. I mean, the guy won a UFC title. Yeah, he was the worse. best fights of all time against Dan Henderson. He ended the Machida era. <laughs> like, I mean, that's a joke now because Joe Rogan ruined it. But like, I believed it when I watched that fight live. I was, I was, uh, I was a, I was a freshman or a sophomore, I think, when he when Machida became world champ. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it's over. Maybe karate is like legit. And uh, then like Shogun. You know, I thought he was getting slaughtered. No, he won. He ended it. It was it was insane. Um, I thought he was the real deal. I thought he did, he had like two or three surgeries going in, like in between the Machida's rematch and the John Jones fight, and I think that had to have played a, a factor in that. We'll move on to the core main event now, and it is for the UFC featherweight title. And it's two guys who faced each other twice already. It's Alex Volkanovski, our reigning champion, who is taking on the number one seed, Max Holloway. Betting odds for this one, you can get Max Holloway at plus 155. Volkanovski, the bookmaker's favorite, minus 180. 
Now, as mentioned before, it's the third fight between the two. They first competed at UFC 245 and then again at UFC 251. Alex Volkanovski winning both of those matches. Interestingly, none of their fights have ever been evented a UFC pay-per-view, which I find quite quirky. I'm going to start off by asking, do you agree with this third fight? Because I'm in a bit of a bind when it comes to this. And I want to stress to Max Holloway fans, this is no sort of jab against him. I personally like the guy and I think he's a fantastic fighter. But at the same time, have you ever seen that episode of The Simpsons where Bart's playing in the championship baseball game and he screws up the game-winning catch, but they keep replaying the game over and over until he gets it right? That's kind of how I feel with Max getting this third match. Like, Max has certainly shown with his performances against Yair and especially against Calvin Cater, he's a step above the rest of the field when it comes to featherweight. But I kind of, I get the impression that if the Boot was on the other foot, and Max Holloway was 2-0 up, up against Volkanovski. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Volkanovski would be nowhere near a third third shot at the title. I, I think so. I I think I think if you just change the names on the scorecards, because I, I except for the first fight. Uh first fight I thought it was a clear Volk win. Third one's or second one's close. Um and I think you can go either way. I score Volk still, but uh, I understand the Max one. Um, if it went that way, there would be no third fight. And I think Volkanovski himself, himself said, like, are we just going to keep giving him rematches until he wins? That's, that's, yeah. the, that's the same sort of, like, concern I have as well. Like, and, and again, it's no disrespect to Max Holloway, who's a fantastic fighter. The real number two. He, it's, it's those two. They're yeah. the top of the mountain. And so I, part of me goes, yeah, give him the, keep, keep giving him shots, but... You know, it's an it's an awkward one, and I also sort of have this fear that if Max was to win this fight, the UFC was sort of retcon to make it seem as if he won the trilogy. <laughs> They're going to. <laughs> I, I I think that's a, an unconfirmed uh, fact at this point. Is if he if he wins in any way, shape, or form, the UFC is going to go. Uh, and his incredibly controversial uh, loss that he definitely won in the second fight. You know, they're going to say it's 2-1 favor of Max when it isn't. Let's talk about some of the combatants in more detail here. We'll start with Alex Volkanovski, 24-1 record, unbeaten in the UFC. He only has one loss on his portfolio, but that came in his fourth ever pro fight, and that took place at welterweight. So, when Alex Volkanovski first came into the UFC... There wasn't really all that much fanfare. He's just sort of like your quintessential wrestle brawler. Uh, a bit of a novelty coming from the fact that he had the rugby background. He was from Australia, which wasn't really... Back in that back in those days, Australia wasn't really a big powerhouse when it came to MMA. Certainly is now with like CKB doing so well. But then he goes on this run and it starts really with the Darren Elkins fight. And then he beats Chad Mendes. And then it's Jose Aldo. Two wins over Max Holloway. Korean zombie, Brian Ortega. So he's racking up a who's who of top featherweight fighters here. He, he looks incredible right now. Uh, with, like, I start, my first fight I watched of him uh, was the Chad Mendes one. And then whenever he got the title shot, I was like, okay, I want to see his whole run. Uh, and he looks insane. His improvements in every fight looks like leaps and bounds. I think the, the least amount of improvement I've ever seen was between Max 1 and 2. Um, and I think he still made improvements. Max just made more. 
uh, in between fights. Uh, but he is looking like, in terms of pure ability, the number one pound-for-pound pound guy on the planet right now, I think. And I think there's certainly a big argument for that. I mean, I know a lot of people are saying, like, Kamaru Usman, uh, Charles Oliveira's getting a lot of love, bearing in mind who he's been beating recently. I'm same with you. I think Volkanovski, in my personal opinion, gets that vote. Um, if there's some... Some things that sort of stood out for me when it comes to Volkanovski is... A lot of his name very early on was that sort of wrestle-brawling style. Like, I make this joke with him and Chad Mendes because he looked quite similar as well. It was two clones fighting each other. And he did fight a lot like Chad Mendes very early on in his run. Recently, though, we've seen him sort of start to abandon the wrestling side of the game. And he's doing the work with his hands. And we saw that with the Korean Zombie. Now, it, it must be stressed, Zombie was a last-minute replacement for Max Holloway, ironically enough. Um... And Alex made that look easy. Much easier than I thought it was going to be. I, I thought it'd be a little competitive, and then Max would, or then Volk would, uh, yes. Alex would pull away. No. Uh, it was a 10-8 basically every round. Um, that was like, a, in a sense, you could argue the like Calvin Cater, Max Holloway performance for Volkanovski. It's like they both had performance that was like, oh, um, going into this, which tells a good, a good story, I guess. So we are talking about an Alex Volkanovsky who is 2-0 up, up against Max Holloway. Looking at the first fight and then the second fight, what do you think were the big keys to Volk's victory, firstly at 245 and then again at 251? What did Max do to sort of neutralize some of Volk's offense from the first fight? What could we potentially see this time around? Uh, I thought the big thing he did... Um was he was ready for the switches when because Volkanovski is incredible at pressing forward with an attack and with either a low kick to open it up and then switching stances mid combination and he was kind of ready for it and he was making smart adjustments like timing an uppercut uh, as the switch would come in while he also was retreating and switching his own stance um, or he when they were at range and he does have the reach advantage. Uh, he would look low and then kick high and create a lot of awkward moments with kicks and, and like the open field. I, I think of Vin, it was doing really well. And then Volkanovsky had to kind of adjust back to it mid fight, which is even harder to try and come back because it was kind of a comeback for him. Cause yeah. I, I thought Max won the first two rounds, if I remember correctly. Volk's rally in those fourth and fifth rounds was very impressive to me because we've always known that, Max Holloway for how good his conditioning is. The fact that he can get even stronger as you get into the fourth and fifth rounds because he's done such a good job keeping up that pace. Volk was able to do that, and Volk looked the fresher fighter by the end of by the end of the fifth round. He was the one coming forward and landing the big shots. And Max was a little bit, ooh, I'm a bit not sure what to do here now. Mm. Definitely, uh, Volk kind of slowed him down, which was yes. impressive. You know. And I th it might have been the big slam he had. I think it was in the fourth round. I know in the fifth round he got one, but I think he had one as well in the fourth round. Uh, but something kind of, you know, slowed down Max just completely. Like, he uh, started kind of neutralizing once again like he did in the first in the first fight. Because I thought he neutralized him in the first fight. Um, and he started kind of doing it near the end. The leg kicks were the big strength Volkanovski had. And it's like... I was one of the few people who gave Volkanovski a chance going into 
that first fight. Like, it's on the 245 preview show. Like, I even made the prediction, prediction and said Volkanovski's going to win this fight. Um, and you saw him working those kicks, and you were sort of like, God, it's so obvious now. Why didn't anyone think of this before? And it was a great performance. It, 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 Volkanovski was, in my opinion, you can make arguments over whether or not Max, and Vol, Max won the second fight. I don't think you can with the first. That's a clear 49-46 for me. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I personally score uh, Alex and for the second fight. Um, I think it's close. Me and my best friend argue back and forth. In fact, they'll probably watch this preview and give me give me hell for it. You watched for, it 49 times? No, no. Or, uh, or, I mean, I've, I haven't watched it that much. I've watched it. I've actually watched it probably like three or four times. But uh, he he scores it for Max. My best friend does. And I score it for Alex. And we always still go back and forth on it, just arguing over it. He's, he's going to watch the preview show and give me a little bit of hell for it, saying I, I still think Alex won. Let's talk, let's talk about Max Holloway a little bit here. So 23-6 and six record, pretty much already booked his place in the UFC Hall of Fame because of the wins on his record. Yair Rodriguez, Calvin Cater, Frankie Edgar, Brian Ortega, two wins over Jose Aldo, Anthony Pettis, Ricardo Lamas, Jeremy Stevens, Charles Oliveira again, poor guy. <laughs> it just, just goes to show how much his career has turned around. So all credit to you, Charles. Um, never been dropped in the UFC, only ever been finished once, which was back in 2012 against Dustin Poirier. His most recent fight, he took on Yair Rodriguez, which was a pretty close decision between the two fighters. Was that Max performing at a lower level, or was that people underestimating Yair? I think it's a mix of Yair being underestimated, me, me included, and I think also stylistically, it was an awkward one for him. Uh, I think I think he still struggles with kick-heavy game plans. And it got to the extent that Max Holloway was having to use something which we haven't seen from him all that often, which was a very grappling-heavy game. Yeah, it, it was a it was crazy seeing it. You know, he was able he started taking him down, started working his jujitsu, working his ground and pound. It was it was kind of it was awesome. I mean, that fight's great. So yeah, but it, it was cool. Uh, so. We've talked about what Alex Volkanovsky has done to get the better of a Max Holloway. And you mentioned some of the improvements that Max made in the second fight. What other weaknesses does he need to close up to just do enough to get this win? Uh, I think I think he needs to focus on... Because the, the body style is different, For I, I don't think some of the kicking problems that you gave him are applicable in this fight. Uh, I think for Max, though, at range, you have to be ready for the low kicks. Either they be inside calf kicks or outside calf kicks from either stance. I think you have to be ready for that at, at the open distance uh, when they're just kind of circling or waiting in the center, looking for opportunities. Um, I think that's the only one I can think of. Uh, other than that, uh, obviously the basics of don't let this guy switch stances on you when he's you know coming in making his movement, you might want to take momentum, or uh, not take momentum, um, I think you might want to give pressure, would be the one thing I think he does, He whoever gives pressure in this fight, seems to have the success, when Alex is pressuring with low kicks, he's winning, when Holloway's pressuring forward with his boxing and uh, Muay Thai, he's winning Who do you think has the power advantage between the two? Because Volkanovski. 
Ah, answer my question for me there. Because <laughs> I was, uh, was going to say that, like, we have seen Alex recently, especially when he fought Korean Zombie, we have seen him starting to load up on his shots a little bit more, become that sort of brawler that a lot of people stereotype him as. But Max Holloway did drop Volkanovski twice in that second fight, so got to bear that into mind. Uh, that is a good, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I still think I still lean Volk. Uh, maybe maybe I should have hesitated, <laughs> but uh, I was more so thinking of uh, the the poundings he gave uh, Ortega and the Korean Zombie. Like they didn't seem to have that one shot power, but they did seem like sledgehammers somehow. It, it was odd. I've picked Volkanovski uh, both times these two have fought, and I'm not going to change my mind. I think Volkanovski is going to win this one, and it's going to be another decision. Uh, I picked I picked Volk in the second fight, and I I gave him a, a better chance in the first fight, but I didn't pick him. But I'm picking Volk here. Yeah. I, I think he's the number one pound for pound guy on the planet. And poor Max, I, I love Max Holloway, big Max Holloway fan, big fan of both of them. But uh, someone's got to lose. I will say, if I was to wake up and see Max Holloway having won that title on that Sunday morning, I wouldn't be surprised. But I do think Max Holloway is a fantastic fighter. We did see him uh, close off some of the others that he made from the first fight in the second one, and I can see him doing so once again. But I think Volkanovski is also going to make those big improvements. The big question then becomes, what do we do with the featherweight division next? Now, obviously, this is going to depend on who ends up winning this fight. But you can make an argument part of the reason why Max is getting this title fight. You obviously haven't really done all that good of a job building up people other than Max. So who does get the winner of this one? Is it Josh Emmett based on what he did against Calvin Cater? Do we finally give Arnold Allen that big push that people have deserved? Yair Rodriguez, Brian Ortega, they've got a main event coming up, so you could potentially say one of those two. But going to be a pretty hard sell for Ortega, given he's lost to both already. So who's in the hot seat for the next featherweight title fight? Uh, this is, uh, probably not the most optimistic opinion of it. I see them going... A fourth time. Uh, I, uh, if Volk wins, it is a fourth time. They're <laughs> going to keep giving Max fights until he wins, but I, I do think that's going to happen, honestly. But I, I think that if they decide, all right, let's wait another year before the fourth fight happens, let's give Emmett the shot. Because we don't have to work to promote him. He's been complaining enough that he's promoting himself. I, it seems like they're almost like lazy when it comes to promoting fighters. And the fact that they have to put some effort into Arnold Allen is like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do that. Let, let's just give it to him. I, I kind of see that mindset from them, sadly. Time for us to talk about our main event of the evening. And we are going to the middleweight division. Israel Adesanya, our reigning champion, he makes his latest defense and he's taking on the 38-year-old killer gorilla, Jared Cannonier, currently ranked number two in the weight class. Betting odds for this one, you can get Adesanya at minus 365. So this is some of his widest odds as champion. Jared Cannonier, the big underdog here, plus 300. Now, Adesanya has been UFC champion since UFC, 24, UFC 243 and he's starting to enter the sort of Dynasty champion phase in the same way that sort of like an Anderson Silva or John Jones or GSP do, where it's sort of like turning back contenders holds the belt for a long time. Now, middleweight has had a lack of title contenders recently. I, I personally think there's... It's certainly not as star-studded as it was, say, a few years ago. 
Are the UFC doing enough to market potential title challenges? Uh, no. <laughs> I feel like that's a running theme when it comes to the UFC. Are they doing well enough to market this? No. Um, sadly, but uh, I think uh, at least like, they're gonna they're gonna market Pajeda if he wins. Oh, big time, and I think yeah, he- like. I think the UFC mentally have already got it in their head that Adesanya versus Pereira is going to happen. And this is just like a foregone conclusion, both of their fights. And I think that's a real shame on Jared Cannonier because I will say, like, Jared Cannonier, he's, I think, I think he's 6-2 and two as a middleweight fighter. Fought at heavyweight, so you've got that intrigue behind him, that he's carried this heavyweight power down to 185. But I just sort of get the feeling he's sort of a proper bit part player in this. Like, I'm personally very biased towards it, so it's part of the reason why it comes to mind for me. It kind of reminds me when Raquel Pennington got her bantamweight title shot. So it was a bit like, uh, there's not really anyone else. She's got a bit of a good winning streak. She's quite highly ranked. Ah, what the hell? We'll just give her a shot. That's kind of how I feel the UFC are treating Kananea. Uh, that sounds very... That's, that actually hits me just right, I think. That, that sounds accurate. I, I do think there's one big difference, though. Uh, I think Cannoneer has a bigger chance in this fight than people want to admit. Uh, Jared Cannoneer is a very good fighter, and we'll go into a bit of a deep dive on him here. So as mentioned before, pretty decent record since he uh, went down to middleweight. Uh, notable wins include Anderson Silva, Jack Manson, Kelvin Gastelum, and most recently Derek Brunson at UFC 271. And I think that fight sort of encapsulates the sort of middleweight run of Jared Cannoneer. Starts a little bit slowly, a bit vulnerable when it comes to grappling heavy fighters, but he's able to adjust, he's able to recover, and eventually power through to get a brutal stoppage win. Like, I personally thought Derek Brunson was going to win that fight, and I was impressed by Kananea that he was able to overcome the grappling. I picked Kananea to win, and I, and at the end of the first round, I thought, oh, I just made a terrible mistake. And then, then he made me look good, because I was right somehow. <laughs> He, he looked great, though, in that second round, at least. Yeah. What, in your opinion, are the big strengths when it comes to Jared Cannonier? Uh Against any opponent, it's his incredible power. Uh, he seems to fight very well when fighting southpaw or orthodox. Um, he's pretty durable. He took a couple of flush head kicks from my man Robert Whitaker. It just kind of went, oh, that sucks, until like the last one knocked him down. Um, and he's almost always ready to just kind of like, you know, let it, you know, let it all hang out. Also, he makes good adjustments. Actually, I didn't think about this. He makes really good adjustments. Um, he, he was kind of setting up Hermanson to duck low and then he set up the uppercut for the finish, uh, against the Brunson fight. Obviously he lost the first round, made a small, a slight adjustment in when he was and what kind of shots he was throwing. And then he got the finish. Um, but lastly, and this is the most important one for this fight, is he has incredible power in his low kicks. Yes. And they caused Jack and Manson a truckload of problems when they fought in that Copenhagen card. Oh, yeah. And then Anderson Silva, I know people that say, oh, it was just a freak injury. No, that was a that was a loss by low kicks. He got finished by low kicks. That wasn't any injury. And I think so. when you've got a sort of movement-based fighter like Adesanya... I think that's one thing that you need to do. You need to slow down his movement. Uh, but I think also you need to check his kicks because 
one of the big reasons Adesanya lost against uh, Jan Blachowicz. Yes, obviously there was a big size difference between the two, and I don't think Adesanya bulked up as much for that fight as he maybe should have done. But an overlooked part of it is Jan Blachowicz is a hell of a good checker of kicks. And that took away one of Adesanya's biggest weapons. So Anani is going to need to dish out the kicks, but he's also going to need to make sure Izzy doesn't do the same thing. It's a it's a two-way street. You know, there's uh, two really simple rules in striking is uh, you you have to kick the kicker. Chad Mendez took away the kicks of uh, Jose Aldo in their second fight by throwing kicks at him. And so that and that's one of the big rules in it. And Adesanya, I'm sure he's aware, is you don't throw hooks against the guy who throws hooks too. Uh, and Cannoneer has the big hooks. So it's kind of interesting in the striking, more so than most people want to give it credit to. Well, let's talk about Adesanya here. Um, as mentioned before, unbeaten as a middleweight. So this is 20, so this is 22 fights as a middleweight, unbeaten. He's only lost came at light heavyweight against Jan Blachowicz. Notable wins during this time include two wins over Robert Whittaker, two wins over Marvin Vittori, Paolo Costa, Joel Romero, Kelvin Gastelum, Anderson Silva, as mentioned there, and Derek Brunson. Um, what can you say when it comes to this guy? So Adesanya, probably up there, is probably one of the best kickboxers in the UFC right now. Some people make an argument, potentially one of the pound-for-pound fighters in the world. But we have seen a very different Adesanya between how he was on the way up and what we've seen as champion. Like, we often use this joke, like Tim Sylvia is one of the big ones that comes to mind, where winning the belt changes a fighter, and instead of fighting to win, they fight not to lose. Could you maybe make that argument Adesanya started to do the same thing? Uh, I, I think there is an argument there, but I think what the counterpoint to it is the cost of fight. Um, yeah, it, it was fantastic in that match. I, I pick Costa to win, and I have not looked dumber, I think, <laughs> because he just made it look so easy. Just a, a very thorough dismantling of him of his entire game um and but lately it does seem like that he didn't take any risks against vittori and he was outclassing vittori but he just didn't take any risks which kind of gives you that shevchenko kind of vibes uh as we mentioned a couple weeks ago but uh the big one was the robert whitaker rematch which i expected a really good fight and it, it, it was good just i don't know He's he's a little different. It's, I don't know if he's slowing down or if it's a mentality thing, but I personally scored it for Rob in the last fight. That's potentially incredible bias. I'm willing to admit. I'm a big Whitaker fan, um, but I, I don't know. So it does seem like he is like just you know very risk free, just happy to get this decision win and call it a day. You think maybe he has been fighting guys recently who do have somewhat of a grappling base like Whitaker did wrestle I think he tried to become a commonwealth wrestler uh before he got into MMA Marvin Vittori of course has a grappling base as well do you think maybe the fact that he's facing a guy in Cannonier who doesn't have that same sort of base do you think we could maybe see Adesanya opening up a little bit because it's not better of a takedown that's actually a good point because the three guys he's had eh, performances against uh is Romero Vittori and Whitaker and then the one guy he's looked just incredible against is in his title. Yeah, is in his title defenses, and it's you know almost in a sense his clone <laughs> in uh, the body kicks instead of low kicks version, uh, you know, of each other. 
what is it in your opinion that's made Adesanya as dominant as he has? What have you seen in his skill set that makes you think that's how he wins fights? He's he's the smoothest fighter I've ever seen, probably. Uh, he, I, I, I think Shevchenko is pretty smooth and pretty dominant. How Izzy moves is on another level. It seems like he lightly hits you, even though he has perfect fluish, like fluid motion. There's no like any excess movement in it. It just connects and it's out. Kind of whenever he, at least when he was coming up, um, his striking is just very, very good. He if he's at least, he's at least the top two striker in the world. Uh, there's no question about that. I think. When it comes to smooth fighters, I'm surprised you didn't mention Benson Henderson. Oh, uh, I mean, smooth he's, Benson Henderson. He's number one because of it. You know, the toothpick doesn't lie. Um, we have seen Adesanya face some adversity uh, earlier in his career. We mentioned before the Jan Blachowicz fight, and we mentioned as, and also as well, Kelvin Gastelum gave him a lot of problems uh, in their interim title fight, which is up there as one of the best of all time. What did they exploit in their two performances? that Kananir can look at and think, that's my go-to? Uh, the two big ones, I thought, were the, the threat of the takedown led his hands to be low. His hands have always been low, even in kickboxing. Izzy's hands have always been kind of, like, here. Um, but he's, you know, he's quick with his head movements. If you're leaning back, it's a little harder to stop a takedown. So, like, guys like Kelvin Gastelum, who, are no, who can just jump on your legs, the, the threat... Uh, with the head kicks took away his head movement uh the big left hands kind of hurt you know whenever he wants to stuff a takedown it was kind of that, that triple threat from uh from those two guys that kind of helped slow him down and unless cannoneer is just gonna you know has been double legging everybody in this uh it's gonna be really hard for him to kind of create that triple threat of I the high kicks and punches and takedowns I think stylistically, and a lot of this you can see in hindsight, stylistically, Kelvin was a tough matchup for Izzy. Like, being the smaller man, we know that Kelvin has a hell of a chain. And Kelvin relied on that a little bit. He was just like, I I'm willing to take some shots to get on the inside. And, of course, Kelvin has some of the fastest, powerful hands in the middleweight division. So, like, you could say kind of the... Uh, yeah, just copy and paste the same strategy. But I don't think Kananir has the chin to do that. And he doesn't have the hand speed. No. Uh, Gastelum, because he had like a, a rough run, people forget how good he actually is. They've never given him an easy fight at middleweight, basically. Uh, and I, I thought him in the easy fight was a draw. Like I, That's how I've been scoring it these last like three times I've watched it. Um, and it's, it's a... You can't just emulate that. You know, there's no copy-paste here for that. That's, that's that guy's whole shtick. You know, and... Whitaker has can kind of emulate it, um, but it's a little bit different from both guys. Well, Whitaker tried doing that big time against uh, Adesanya the first time around, and we saw how that ended up. Yeah, I think a lot of that was burnout, though. Mm. Uh, I do think I do think the burnout overtraining story has some validity to it. Someone said something which I kind of see where they're coming from when it comes to Cannonier. Basically, Jared Cannonier can win this fight. But he can't fight like Kananir if he wants to do it. Like, if he just goes in there and fights the same way he did uh, against Hermanson, Derek Brunson, that sort of quintessential cut and paste Kananir performance, is he's going to piece him apart. 
But if he's able to adapt and especially take away the leg kicks, he has got a shot. He can cause Adesanya problems. I think he has to do that. I think he has to go in there with uh, a check his kicks, be patient, and just slowly wear down those legs. And then by like round three, if you've done enough damage, which he can do with his low kicks, uh, he should be an easier target for you to land a bomb on. Um, that's easier said than done. Definitely. So. We've talked earlier in the show about uh, Adesanya, uh, not Adesanya, about Alex Pereira versus Sean Strickland and potentially the winner of that one facing Adesanya for the title after this. What do we do if Kananir wins? Does that fight still happen or do they run the Adesanya rematch back? Uh, if he starches Izzy to where there's no controversy, there's no question, you know, five round drubbing, uh, a like Usman, Tyron Woodley kind of situation, then there is no rematch, obviously, in a situation like that. But uh, if he just catches him, even I think in the first couple minutes, I could see the UFC kind of playing it up like a fluke. Like, well, can he do it again? And then they rematch it. And then here we are with Sean Strickland, Pajeda, fighting Robert Whitaker as Whitaker kills off another top contender. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so put your money where your mouth is for this one. Who's winning and how? Uh, I, I really want to just open myself up to being incredibly wrong and pick Cannoneer. I... I I'm picking Izzy. I, my, my mind says Izzy. I think that's the smart money. I think he's just a better fighter. But I, if Cannoneer wins uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to be surprised. I think Cannoneer is a lot better than anyone. or I think he has a better chance than the, the odds are saying at this point. My head and my gut both say Adesanya. My, I'm gonna, I've got to be honest though. My heart would quite like Javid Cannoneer to win this one. Bearing in mind he's 37, 38 years old. And you've got to bear in mind as well, International Fight Week, middleweight title fight, International Fight Week 2013, Chris Weidman defunded Anderson Silva. And my favorite middleweight title fight ever. Because <laughs> uh, I, I looked like a genius after that. Because you picked him to win, <laughs> didn't you? I picked him to win and I said how he would do it. And I thank you, Jack Slack. I, I owe him a lot for making me look smart in a, uh, at a sports bar. So that is the uh, rundown um, of you. Oh, yeah. I'll let you go first. No. So that is the rundown of UFC 276. Uh, we mentioned before International Fight Week, the UFC like to uh, sort of bring out the big guns. Is this one which is going to be worthy of your money, Joe? Absolutely. <laughs> I will. The uh, I have to work that night, uh, but luckily I work from home, so I will be waking up early and watching all the prelims as soon as they start till the main event. No question. And that is the UFC 276 preview show. I have to say, Joel, thank you very much for joining us once again. Uh, you've been a great contributor to the show. And it's not going to be your sole appearance on uh, the INC family. Tell us a little bit about some of your projects you're going to be uh, showcasing here and on the main channel. Well, we recorded this before the uh, the Gamrot's Rukian fight, so I will be recapping that fight tonight. I'm very or not tonight, but uh, well, I will it gets be recapping that fight. I'm very excited. On Friday. Sure, yeah, I, I I still think today's Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, myself even, 
but uh, yeah, I will be recapping that fight. I, I'm also on uh, the Retro Review series, which has been doing great. It seems like thank you for all the support for it. Uh, it literally brightens my uh, my cold, icy heart. Uh, it's it's fantastic seeing all the positive, uh, e- even the constructive criticism. I, I do take into consideration, and I always try to adjust and make the next one better and better. Shall so, we? Shall we give uh, away what this week's is? It's International Fight Weeks. You know, it's. Uh, I'm okay with giving it away. I mean, it's the International Fight Week to end all International Fight Weeks. 189, uh, the craziest card I've watched in a long time, looking back at it. Oh, Conor McGregor, Chad Mendes, Robbie Lawler, Robbie McDonald yeah. too. And then the, the two sleepers that, like, I forget how insane of a fight they were, uh, was Jeremy Stevens, Dennis Bermudez, and then Brad Pickett, one of my favorites ever, against Thomas Almeida. Like, those both those fights are great too, and could have been they, they could have been fight of the night on almost any other card that year. So that is the UFC two seventy six preview show. Joe, thank you very much for joining me. Yep, always and, glad to be here, and we'll hopefully have you back as well when we cover UFC two seventy seven, Kenya versus Nunes two, Bantamweight Wars episode five, The Lioness Strikes Back. Oh yeah. <laughs> She's going to walk in like Vader with that lightsaber too. So that is the UFC 276 show. Thank you very much for joining us. This is the INC. Thank you very much for watching.